Good morning once again. God's word to us this morning comes from 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 1, here in just a moment. 1 John chapter 5, if you don't have your own Bible, please feel free to use one of the Bibles on the pew uh, in front of you. This text will not be up on the screen uh, behind me, so I encourage you to have your own Bible and look at it yourself. We'll be referring back to numerous verses multiple times. 1 John chapter 5. You'll find 1 John toward the end of your Bible, if you're not familiar with the way a Bible is laid out. Um, 1 John comes almost at the very end. Uh, the last book you will find in your Bible is Revelation. Uh, and if you flip back a few books from Revelation backwards, you'll come to 1 John, 1 John chapter 5. And one experience that I would assume all of us, or at least almost all of us, have experienced at one time or another in our lives, is the feeling of being an outsider in a group, you're new to a group of people, perhaps this is a new job that you've experienced, or a new group of friends, or you moved and you were into a new uh, area of the country, so to speak, but then all of a sudden in this new group of people where you're the outsider, you're the new person, they start using words that you don't know what they mean. You ever experience this? They start saying words and everybody seems to know exactly what everybody's talking about except for you. And so they're using words and you don't know exactly what they mean. Well, words are extremely important. We use words in some very interesting ways. And I've always found it fascinating when I talk to people who did not grow up in the church. Right? I, I grew up in a church my whole life. I've been in a church my whole life. I've grown up in churches in the South, in Kentucky, my whole life. And so there's a certain way that we talk. And we don't even think about it sometimes because we've been in it so often. But if, if, for instance, you are new to the community of a church, I would venture to say some of the words that we say and some of the things that I might say when I preach are, are just unintelligible. And I would love for somebody after the sermon today to come up to me and you know, to say, you know what, you did that during your sermon. You, know, you said a word and I had no idea what that word meant. But we do this. This is human nature. If you're part of a group, you start using words that outsiders would have no idea what they mean. And to us, it makes complete sense. Now, what's interesting about this is some of these words are words we would never think of in this context. One of those words is faith. The word faith. What does it actually mean? Have you ever thought about that? What does faith actually mean? I venture to say if we were to take a poll, we would get all kinds of different definitions on what the word faith actually means. How many times have we heard some celebrity say something to the effect of, my faith is very important to me, and yet when you really dig down into it, they mean something very different than what I mean when I talk about faith. Faith is one of those words that we have to stop every now and then and ask ourselves, what do we actually mean when we say the word, what does faith actually mean? Let's look at 1 John 5, 1 through 5 this morning. 1 John 5, 1 through 5. John writes to us, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. 
For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so what does this word faith mean when we talk about it, when we read it in the Bible? Well, this passage lets us in on a couple things. Number one, faith means being born again. Faith means being born again. Did you see that in verse 1 there? Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. Remember how sometimes we, we equate faith with believing that Jesus is the Christ. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Or verse 4. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. Our faith. And so faith means being born again. Being born again. Jesus, when he was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, told Nicodemus, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And Nicodemus asks him, as anyone would, who hears a phrase like that, that they don't know what it means, just like we hear phrases sometimes when we're in a group where we're the outsider. Nicodemus says, so am I supposed to enter my mother's womb for a second time to be born once more? And Jesus says, no, that's, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about spiritual new birth, a spiritual rebirth, a spiritual death, and a spiritual new creation. This is faith. Faith means being born again. Faith is not some generic openness to God in spiritual things. That's the way some people in our culture will use the term, faith, as just a generic openness to spiritual things, a generic openness to God. This is not what faith means according to Scripture. Faith is not having good thoughts about Jesus and the church. Faith does not even mean believing the facts that Jesus lived, died on the cross, and rose from the dead. Faith does not mean believing the facts that Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead. How do we know that? Because even Satan believes that those things happened. And he is not saved. We are not talking about just a general belief here. We're talking about saving faith. What is faith that overcomes the world? What is faith that saves? It is not enough to simply believe the facts about Jesus. Even Satan believes that Jesus lived. He believes that Jesus actually died on the cross and that he rose again. He is not disputing those facts. He just wants to deceive the world on those things. But believing those facts is not enough to be saved. Sometimes we will use John 3.16 and give people a false picture of salvation to say all you have to do is believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That is not an accurate picture of what John means and what Jesus means in John 3.16 when he says, believe. It's not just believing that something happened. It's believing from your heart. Believing in such a way that you are born again. You see, faith means trust. When you see faith in the Bible, you can substitute that word trust. Faith means trust. Do you trust Jesus enough to stake your eternity on Him? 
You trust Him enough to stake your eternity on Him. Do you trust Jesus enough to deny the world and its comforts? So, quick question. Would you follow Christ if it meant losing your home? Would you follow Christ if it meant being arrested? Would you still follow Christ if it meant losing your job? Or if it meant being ostracized from your family? Those things right there might not seem like a very present reality to us here in America, but they are a very, very real reality to many who come to faith in Christ across the world. Faith means being born again. You must be born again. It means dying to yourself and being raised a new person. Think about that imagery of being born again. How can I be born again? Well, I must die, and I must be recreated, being raised a new person spiritually. In Romans 6, Paul talks about this. Romans 6, starting in verse 3, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the, to the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We were buried by baptism. When you see someone get baptized, get dunked under those waters, that is a spiritual burial, a spiritual death of their old man. Some of our Bible translations translate it. A spiritual death of the old person. And when they come up out of those waters, God promises in His Word, He has made them a new creation. He's given them a new heart. They are raised to newness of life. This is being born again. And it's happening in here. While on the outside, that person is getting dunked under those waters of baptism. It means being born again. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, If anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. A new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Or, Old Testament prophecy. Ezekiel 36, 26. God says, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. We must be born again. Has your heart been changed? Has your heart been changed this morning? Do you love Jesus? Not just do you know that He died for you. Not just do you think He's a great guy. Do you love Him? Do you love Him this morning? Or how about this? Can you say in your heart that you love God's command? Which leads us to our next point. Faith means loving God and His commands. Faith means loving, not just God, but loving His commands. Look at verses 2 through 3 with me. Again, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Faith Born-again faith means we love God and His commandments. We trust faith. We trust that God knows what's best for us better than we do. The reverse happened 
in the Garden of Eden, Satan convinced Adam and Eve to think that they knew what was best for them better than God did. And we were never meant, we were never meant to carry such a burden. Faith trusts that God knows what's best for us better than we do. And God's commands are not burdensome. Did you see that in the text at the end of verse 3 there? God's commands are not burdensome, John says. They are not a burden. Many people view the commandments of God this way, do they not? The commandments of God are a burden. Many people think that God's laws are just keeping us from having fun. If it weren't for God's commandments, I could indulge in all these pleasurable activities without guilt. By the way, that typically comes from a young person. Why why a young person? Well, because they haven't lived long enough to experience the painful consequences of the pleasures of sin. They haven't realized the pleasures that they are talking about are actually like a nice, big, juicy worm that the fish doesn't realize is hiding a hook that's about to set itself into his jaw and be the end of his life. That's the pleasure of sin. John says God's commands are not burdensome. They are not burdensome. John Piper says it this way. I thought this was brilliant. God is not a killjoy. He's just opposed to what kills joy. You get that? God's not a killjoy. He's not out to ruin your joy or keep you from joy. He's opposed to what will ruin your joy, to what will keep you from joy. God's commandments don't rob you of joy. They lead you to it. They keep you away from the things that will ultimately rob you of joy. Do you think that you would be happy living in complete indulgence? Do you think that you'd be happy living without restraints, living out all your sexual fantasies, eating and drinking anything and everything you wanted whenever you wanted, spending all kinds of money, indulging in every form of popular entertainment, completely living for yourself. You think that would make you happy? Go talk to the people who are doing it. See how happy they are. They're miserable, and they can't even tell you why. In the Old Testament, we read of King Solomon, who had the world at his disposal. He had the world at his fingertips. And he indulged in everything that he could find. In the book of Ecclesiastes, he tells us he sought satisfaction everywhere he could seek it. He sought it through wisdom and philosophy. He was the wisest person that had ever lived up to that point. He sought it through women. He sought it through projects, building projects. He sought it through everything he could find. He put himself into all kinds of different things, seeking the satisfaction that his heart desired. And what did he come out with in the end? None of it satisfied his heart. The only thing that satisfies is God himself. And so John tells us, God's commands are not burdensome. They are not burdensome. God's commands lead you to joy. Psalm 1611, there are joys at the right hand of God. Pleasures forevermore. The world cannot give you a joy like God can give you. The world can give you a temporary satisfaction that only seems like a joy. 
but it is a pleasure that is fleeting. Only God can satisfy your heart, and in only God does it last. When you come to faith, you are born again, and you begin to recognize, you begin to recognize, I'm not just obeying God's commands. I love them. I'm not just obeying God's commands. I love them. They are attractive to me. They're sweet to me. I see them as glorious. Look at what it says in Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Does your heart stir when I read things like that? Is there a stirring in your heart? When I became a Christian, I knew some of the commands of God, but I did not have that stirring in my heart, a love for the commands of God. But I can vividly remember in high school being on my bed and reading parts of the Bible that I had highlighted. I didn't have the greatest study habits back then, but I was reading parts of the Bible that I had highlighted. I would do this every now and then. And feeling this thing inside of me, feeling this literally a a tingling right here and wondering, what is that? feeling a stirring of my heart as I read the commandments of God and literally thinking to myself, what is that? And how do I keep it? How do I get it back? How do I stir my heart like that over and over again? Because it was addicting. Does your heart stir? Do you love the commandments of God? Does it stir your heart when we read the Bible aloud in church, when you read it on your own? As one of the marks of being born again is not a heart that just knows the commandments of God and wants to obey the commandments of God, but loves them, sees them as attractive and glorious. We love God and His commandments. But finally this morning, we see in our text, faith overcomes the world. Faith overcomes the world. Look at verse 4. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Faith overcomes the world. But how? How does faith overcome the world? Well, part of it is Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Jesus reveals part of this. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 16, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And so what we learn from that is, 
Faith overcomes the world because being born again means giving up the world for Christ. That's part of what being born again means. It's giving up the world for Christ. You make a hard decision. It's a hard decision to come to Christ because it means giving up the world, forsaking the world. The world cannot offer me anything anymore. I'm coming to Christ and I'm forsaking the world. As Jesus said, I am losing my life so that I could find it. Because what good would it do me? This is what Jesus says. What good would it do me if I gained the whole world and in the end forfeited my soul? If there were such a position as king of the whole world and you had it for the rest of your life, you were the king of the whole world, it would not be worth it if you spent eternity in hell. This world is like that compared to hell, compared to eternity. This world goes by like that compared to eternity. 80, 90, 100 years in comfort is not worth eternity in torment. But the flip side is also true. 80, 90, 100 years of suffering would be worth it if it meant eternity in paradise with God. That would be worth it. In the 1950s, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and three other man, men began a plan to share the gospel with the Warani people in Ecuador, a violent tribal group who had never been contacted by the outside world. You can see this portrayed in the movie, which is pretty good, The End of the Spear. I don't know if any of you guys saw that back in around 2006 is when it came out. Well, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and their friends were speared to death in 1956, while attempting to share the gospel with this tribal people in their own language. These men had guns to defend themselves, but they refused to use them because they said they would rather die than deprive the Warani people that were attacking them. They would rather die than deprive those people of the chance to go to heaven. So they refused to use the guns to defend themselves. And they were killed, speared to death as they shared the gospel with this tribal group. Years earlier, as he was feeling called to missionary work, Jim Elliott wrote this in his journal. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Through faith in Christ, Jim Elliott overcame the world. He is, as Hebrews eleven thirty eight says, he is a man of whom the world was not worthy. After he was murdered, Jim's widow, Elizabeth Elliot, and Nate Saint's sister, Rachel, moved to the jungles of Ecuador to continue trying to reach this tribe for Christ. Elizabeth Elliot brought her three-year-old daughter brought her three-year-old daughter to the jungles of Ecuador, to this tribal group that had killed her daughter's dad. Rachel Saint brought eight-year-old son of Nate Saint, Steve. And those ladies eventually led the Huarani people to faith in Christ. Through faith in Christ, these women overcame the world. In 1838, James Calvert 
a British missionary, embarked on a missionary journey to share the gospel with a people group in Fiji well known for being cannibals. As they arrived at the islands, the ship's captain tried to turn James Calvert back, saying, you will lose your life and the life of those with you if you go among such savages. Calvert replied, we died before we came here. Through faith in Christ, Jim Calvert overcame the world. Faith in Christ is not something that adds an hour of commitment to your already packed life every week on Sunday. Faith in Christ is not something that helps you feel better about yourself. Faith in Christ means forsaking and overcoming the world. Now finally, faith overcomes the world because we are putting our faith in the one who has overcome the world. Our faith overcomes the world because we are putting our faith in the one who has overcome the world. John 16, You will have trouble, but I have overcome the world. Our kids have a little CD that we listen to in the car every now and then full of Bible verse songs. It's just straight up Bible verses set to music. And, you know, we found some that we kind of like that weren't totally annoying. So we bought a few of them and we play them in the car to the kids. And you just memorize scripture by listening to these songs. It's great. But one of them, probably my favorite one, just says this over and over again. And I, I will freely admit, sometimes when I'm alone in the car, I listen to that song and I just cry. I just cry. Because over and over again, it says... You will have trouble, but I have overcome the world. Hear the words of Christ this morning. You will have trouble, but I have overcome the world. You will have trouble, but I have overcome the world. You will have trouble, but I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for your Son who overcame by facing down the cross. Your word tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And we thank you for that. We cannot stop thanking you. We cannot thank you enough. Thank you for your promise that we will have trouble, but Jesus has overcome the world. God, give us faith. Give us trust in Christ that overcomes the world. Give us such a faith, such a trust that we would forsake the world. And by forsaking it, and by putting our faith in the one who has overcome the world, we ourselves would overcome the world. I pray for those this morning who have yet to experience that faith. I pray that you would open their hearts to you and the glory of your son Jesus in the gospel and the glory of your grace that is extended freely to them. 
to come to Jesus and to overcome the world. I pray that you would drive this truth deep into our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.